0: If you were here last Sunday morning, you will remember that the Apostle Paul had visited the Greek city of Thessalonica. He taught three times in the synagogue and in the marketplace during the week, and he upset some of the locals so badly that a mob was formed, and Paul's life was threatened and deciding that discretion was the better part of valor, his friends encouraged him to leave the city, and so he left to go south to Athens and Corinth, and you'll hear a little bit more about that in our study this morning. And so, several months later, Silas and Timothy, who would Uh, been left behind, met up with Paul in Corinth, and they were able to share with him that the church in Thessalonica, although it seems to have got off to a bad start, was in fact flourishing, and they were doing some remarkable things, growing in their faith, impacting the local community, and chapter one last week, which you'll remember, was very much the focus of Paul saying thank you well done. I'm delighted to hear of all that's been happening. And so now we come to chapter 2, and Paul writes in verse 1, "'You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and had been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you His gospel in spite of strong opposition.'" For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from you, or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. "'We work night and day "'in order not to be a burden to anyone "'while we preach the gospel of God to you. "'You are witnesses, and so is God, "'of how holy and righteous and blameless "'we were among you who believed.'" For you know that we, how we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And now as you move into chapter 2, he is saying to them, let me remind you of some of the things that are absolutely paramount if you are Ever to be the church that God is calling you to be, if you want to be the men and women that He is shaping and fashioning and refining, there are some areas you need to pay attention to, and that's exactly what He does in verse two. And notice how He begins. He begins, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure we had previously suffered and had been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, and notice what comes, we dare to tell you His gospel in spite of strong opposition. And then, jump on down, verse 4, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with His gospel. And then further down, Verse 8, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And then at the end of verse 9, he writes, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God. Four times in those first nine verses, he focuses on the gospel Now, why is that important? Now, please, you need to remember the context of what's happening here. And the context was this. You remember last Sunday morning I mentioned to you that this is taking place in Greece. The gospel had moved from the Middle East over into Europe for the first time. Remember we gave you, uh, we focused in on some of the cities in ancient Greece, and you'll see them on the screen Philippi in the north, Neapolis is there as well. As you move on south and west, you come to Thessalonica and then Berea. And if you follow the green line all the way down, you get to Athens and Corinth in the south. And the context is important for this reason. These were cities and towns that had what is called a Hellenistic culture. In other words, they look back with great fondness and affection when Greece, as a culture, as a society, as an empire, was at its finest under Alexander the Great. And as a result of Hellenistic education, of course, you had Socrates and Plato, etc., etc. And the Greeks loved academic intellectual discussion. And so philosophers would move from town to town to town to city having discussions and open forums, and expecting the local community to provide them with a place to sleep, provide them with some measure of an income, and with food to eat. And in fact, it became a burden on the local community. And that's why Paul says in verse 9, we were never a burden to any of you while we were with you. In fact, we worked so hard, loved you so dearly, we shared our lives with you. And what Paul was doing was modeling for this young church the love and grace of God. And the fact he mentions the gospel four times is for this reason. He's saying to them, remember who you were. Some of them came from a Jewish background some from a Gentile background. Some of them were besotted with Hellenistic philosophy and the meaning of life. And Paul is saying to them, remember who you once were and where you have come from. In other words, he's saying to them this, that as you look back on your life, please remember that religious observance, the formality of religion did not bring you into a heart relationship with God. Remember who you used to be, but remember also the wonder and the grace of God in the gospel. And he's saying to them, if you're ever to be different from the people around you, you have to stay focused on a gospel identity. That's who you are. And out of having a gospel identity, he goes on to tell them, you have and will develop a heart shaping community. And that means this. And we know it too in our own lives, because here week by week by week in the life and natural rhythm of our own congregation, people will meet for Bible study on Thursday morning and Tuesday night and Sunday morning and Friday afternoon. Why? Why? because they know the importance of growing in their faith. And they understand that accountability of learning together is part and parcel of a heart-shaping community. Now, we as a church, if you are to say, Richard, I hear what you're saying, I understand it, but where do I see that in first prayers? And we would want to say over the last three or four years, we have been unrolling a strategic plan which we think is of immense help as we move forward and continue to be the people that God is calling us to be. And we see it in a multiplicity of ways. Number one, on a Sunday morning, we seek to provide a secure spiritual home for all age groups. And so if you're four years old all the way through to 94 years old, you are welcome here on Sunday morning. You're welcome, in fact, anytime, because we want to provide a secure spiritual home where you have a sense of belonging, a place where you can learn, a place where you can grow, a place where you feel at home. And we put that right up there as one of our many priorities. Secondly, we also want to be a congregation that when we focus on a ministry, whatever that ministry is, our children's ministry or our youth ministry or adult education or reaching out into the community and a multiplicity of ways, we hope that everything we do, is life-giving and life-affirming. Life-giving and life-affirming. Because we are convinced that the Christian has a quality of life because of a relationship with Christ that is extraordinary. It is fun. It is exciting. It is spectacular to walk with Him each day and seek to live out your faith each day, and that is also a priority for us. Thirdly, we believe that's important on Sunday morning when we spend time in the Scriptures to learn biblical principles that we can apply to our own lives as we live out our faith. And that means that from time to time on a Sunday morning, we may deal with a controversial issue. An issue that is sensitive, an issue that leaves us uncomfortable, issues like the sanctity of human life, issues like marriage, issues like human sexuality, issues, and we touched on it ever so briefly at the end of the service last Sunday morning, gun violence in our nation. And when we come to deal with tough issues, we hope we'll deal with them gently, with grace and dignity. Our job is never to hate anyone or put anyone down, but to highlight the issue and say, what is a Christian response? And so sometimes we'll deal with controversial issues, hard subjects, And we should, because I'm absolutely convinced that as Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, he's telling them the same thing. You must live out your faith in the context you live in. Now, having said all of that, is there one thing over and above everything else from which all of this flows? And the answer is yes. Every time we meet, whether it be corporately on Sunday morning, whether it be for small Bible study groups during the week, whatever the occasion, we are always going to put as a priority intentional engagement with God. Because if we don't engage with God in everything we do, we're not a church. We're something else. And so he has first and foremost place in our affections and our love and our worship. And when we put him first, we have as a result a gospel-shaped identity and a heart-shaping community. Now, having said all of that, where does Paul take us next? Well, he goes on and says, He talks about not only the wonder of the gospel and how it impacts lives, but it should turn over into verse 10. He writes, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into His kingdom and into His glory. In fact, twice in the passage, Paul draws the analogy between a mother, and then on another occasion, as a father. He uses that parenting analogy, because Paul, like us, understands this. Now, when the gospel breaks into a person's life— We never, ever, ever have instant maturity. We do not become holy at the snap of a finger. We are not intellectually and somehow superior because we have been exposed to the gospel. We don't become mature in our faith. We don't become instantly morally faultless. We don't become spiritually wise simply because the gospel has impacted and transformed our lives. But what we do have is this, We have a relationship with Christ who loves us unconditionally and eternally. And then he goes to work on us and he shapes us and fashions us and refines us in order to make us more Christ-like. And that is a lifelong process because although we have been transformed by the gospel and taken out of the power and dominance of sin in our life, sin is always, always, always at our heels, always tempting us, always seeking to draw us back, always seeking to influence our life, always seeking to dominate us. But with the help and enabling grace of the Spirit of God, we put it behind us and say we don't have to live there. We don't have to be like that any longer. And that's why Paul is going to great lengths to say, remember who you are, now remember who you've become. You have a gospel-shaped identity, because with Christian belief comes Christian behavior how often have we said on a Sunday morning that the millennial generation coming into early adulthood now listen with their eyes and they think with their heart. In other words, they are looking for authentic, credible models of Christianity that make a difference. It was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. Having said all of that, how do we begin to wrap this up? Well, the next five minutes will probably be the most uncomfortable for you this morning. It certainly is uncomfortable for me because if I had any influence on the Apostle Paul at all, I would have said to him, Paul, Look at verse 9, where he says, We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And then I would have asked him to jump to verse 11 and write, For you know that we dealt with each other, each of you, as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Because verse 10 makes me uncomfortable. And I honestly wish it wasn't there. And notice what Paul writes. He writes to this young, growing church, you are witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, why am I uncomfortable with verse 10? Because of the word holy. I would rather it's not there. Holiness is a word that is seriously out of tune with our contemporary grammar. Holiness, we're tempted to think of in this day and age, is a bit of an oddity. When was the last time you watched a series on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu that focused on nine successive episodes on holiness? When was the last time you heard it discussed on a television program? When was the last time it made the newspaper headline or reported on a news bulletin? The temptation for us to think of holiness as an oddity is very real. But please hear this. The temptation to think of it as an oddity has got a great deal to do with our own spiritual poverty. In Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4, we find the same text of Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And He is holy in His character and He is holy in His grace, and He is holy in His magnificence and splendor, and He is holy in His undiluted, unrestrained, unvarnished, eternal love for us, and He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and we are not holy. We find ourselves watching television programs and movies that would have curled the hair on a previous generation. And we will put up with the language and the trash that is put on as entertainment. And please understand this, we should never, ever, ever be entertained by that which Christ died for. And yet we put up with it. And we think it's normal. And we'll just fast forward. And it's no big deal. It is a big deal when sin captures every single segment of our society and tells you that that which is wrong is somehow right. It's not, and it's sinful, and it's trash, and there comes a time when we as the people of God say, enough, and we will not put up with it. And the only way it will stop is if we say, we will not watch this, we will not listen to it, and say, we have had enough, holiness matters. It makes us uncomfortable. We're tempted to think it is somehow narrow-minded and archaic and out of touch when it is the very essence of God himself. That's why Paul put it in there. That's why we're uncomfortable with it. And as we draw this together, let me ask you, is there this morning in the deepest recesses of who you are a longing, consistent desire for holiness? Are you passionately going after it? Are you seeking to grow deeper in your faith? Do you long to be exposed and relish in the holiness of His redemption. Because, beloved, once you have tasted that, nothing else comes close, doesn't come close. And what would it be if churches across our nation longed for the holiness and splendor and majesty and transcendent glory of God. That's what it means to have a gospel-shaped identity, to have holiness shape our community. That's why it's there, because when we are there, it rids us of indifference and apathy. It fires our faithfulness, and we delight and rest in the undiluted splendor of Him who is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come and freely express to you that not only are we uncomfortable with our own lack of holiness, we are grieved that we day by day seek not holiness, but we seek sin instead. Father, change us. Transform us. Grant to us a longing, passionate desire that we might be your children, a children willing to grapple with and grasp a mature and biblical understanding of your majesty and grandeur. Father, set our hearts aflame. Enable us in the midst of this thriving city, this bustling place, to be a people with a gospel-shaped identity, a people growing in community, a people who have a longing for holiness. In Jesus' name we pray.